Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Jones! Bowden! He's got it! Stokes flashes it away through the covers for four, and England have won the match. Hello, welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. 8th of March 2023, it's 28 days, I think, to the beginning of the county cricket season, and it's the coldest day of the year. There's snow outside. One of our guests today, I can see snow on the roof outside. That guest is Simon Wilde of the Sunday Times, Cricket Correspondent of the Sunday Times, who's produced a fascinating book, and another book by Simon Wilde. This one's called The Tour, the story of the England cricket team overseas, 1877 to 2023. And we're going to be hearing from Simon about his book shortly. We've also got, of course, our regular co-host Simon Mann, which means there are three Simons on this call. What is the collective noun for Simons? I, I would give it a season of Simons. Simon Wilde, what have you got? A pleasure of Simons. You can never have too many of us, I don't think. <laughs> well, that might be arguable. Um, Simon, man, you, you can't think of anything, can you? A simple of Simons, surely. Simple of Simons. No, well, I'm, not, I'm not subscribing to that. Or we could have a scintilla of Simons, maybe. Bit of alliteration there for you. Anyway, so that's what's coming up today, talking about touring and all the aspects of touring from right back in the 1870s to, to the current era, what it's like, where you go, the issues that crop up, the stories that, that are generated from England tours of the last 100-odd years. But first, before we get to that, uh, just for a minute, I'd like to reflect on the, the Cricket Discipline Commission hearing into racism and discrimination at Yorkshire, which, of course, has been the big talking point these last few days. Uh, I found it alternatively fascinating, depressing and distressing as very expensive lawyers poured over the minutiae of what may or may not have been said between teammates, in some cases, 14 years ago. 
Now, there's no doubt that some awful things have emerged from people's lips at Yorkshire and elsewhere, and no doubt Azim Rafiq and others have suffered because of our collective ignorance, insensitivity, yeah, unconscious discriminatory bias. But did it really have to come to this? Did it really have to come to a hearing over five days in Fleet Street? Could it not have been sorted out by all parties involved talking about it and sharing their feelings and grievances so everyone understands each other better? The trouble with this process, if you could call it that, is that really there are now more questions than answers. I mean, why did neither side try harder to get other witnesses to corroborate or dispute the evidence? Why did the ECB not interview Michael Vaughan? They say they wrote to him, but they didn't interview him. Why did Lord Patel, piloted in as Yorkshire chairman, sack virtually every member of the county staff without even talking to them first? Was he encouraged to do that by the ECB, as he suggested in a newspaper interview? And if so, by whom? When and why were a ton of key documents relating to these various cases deleted from servers at Yorkshire, and who ordered that? It's truly a can of worms, and many of the worms will continue to wriggle for years. There'll be no immediate closure. It has been, I would say, an appallingly managed situation from the start, and we have the faint irony now of Julian Knight, chairman of the DCMS Select Committee, who of course heard Azim Rafiq's harrowing testimony with the, the, the other members of that committee, he made wild statements without doing due diligence and listening to both sides of the story. And now he has recently had his own government whip removed after a complaint about his behaviour to the Met Police and Julian Knight is now claiming that the proper process wasn't followed. I mean, you couldn't make it up. So what a sorry, messy tale it has all been, which I have to say has been brilliantly covered by your colleague, Simon Wilde, Michael Atherton in The Times. You've uh, followed it a bit yourself, Simon. Um, what, what did you make of it all? Well, I endorse a lot of what you've just said. Um, I mean, my main observation is one that um, Michael Atherton's made in, in The Times, which is that the ECB's own uh, involvement in this case is, is subject to scrutiny. And, and there's a lot of questions about how the board has behaved that are not answered. And of course, the irony is that that they, the this inquiry, this hearing, is being uh, handled by the CDC, which is an arm of the ECB. But the CDC is unlikely to find any uh, case against the ECB. That's not that's not really its job. It's charging several players and former coaches at Yorkshire. It's not it's not looking at the ECB's conduct. But who is looking at the ECB's conduct? Shouldn't somebody be looking at that? Um, there's a you know there's a case for a proper independent inquiry into all this really, but it, it, the the inquiry we're having is one commissioned by the ECB, and of course nobody on that panel I don't think is going to be turning around and saying that the ECB actually made this the following multiple mistakes. But I think you know there is a case for looking at how the ECB handled it, the inquiry, its own investigation, as you mentioned, into what happened with Michael Vaughan um, in 2009. They didn't ask. They didn't interview everyone. They didn't interview several people who could have helped enlighten them on what was going on that day. Um, so, yeah, my, that would be my takeaway: is what about what what the ECB did? Shouldn't someone not be asking questions of them? In a way, it it, it sort of begs the question: Can a, a body be a governor and a regulator at the same time? Doesn't it? There's a 
conflict of interests there. And, I, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? The Premier League now likely to appoint an independent regulator to look after the football Premier League. Uh, it's, I suppose, invoked a lot of comment about the ECB. Are they fit for purpose, etc.? I sort of feel, I sense the ECB are sort of grappling with all this stuff. Um, it's, it's a very complica- complicated area, and I guess it won't go away. Uh, I mean, Simon Mann... You probably look at it all feeling a bit sad in a way. It doesn't. It doesn't sort of paint cricket in a very good light, which in in some ways seems a bit unfair on the game. I feel. Uh, my mum, um, when I was growing up, used to use a phrase. She said, "You need the wisdom of Solomon uh, to sort this out," and I, that's how I feel about it. I mean, I goodness knows how they're going to sort it out. The, the commission, you know, what the judgments they're going to come to. Uh, I'm not sure there are any Solomons around in this. Uh, Sorry story. Um, so let, let, let's see how it, it plays out. But yeah, it has been pretty depressing, I think, uh, seeing all the, the, the witness statements over the last um, week or so. Well, we'll wait to see what the uh, verdict is. It's uh, reliant on Tim O'Gorman, who was a very good batsman for Derbyshire, actually, to as the chairman of the CDC, to uh, eventually uh, write out uh, a verdict. And there'll be people waiting with bated breath to see what happens. I mean... Someone like Michael Vaughan's whole career is very much on the line. And uh, it, it's pretty, it must be a pretty horrible situation. I, I mean, I've actually seen Vaughan a couple of times and he's talked about the um, emotional stress he's gone through. Obviously, other participants in this saga have, have suffered the same. So let's hope the suffering ends at some point, but there's no immediate sign of that. Okay, so we'll keep you posted on, you know, the the... the decisions on that I'm sure you'll read about them anyway let's let's go on to sort of more I suppose more happier ideas the idea of a tour uh, the book as I said the tour the story of the England cricket team overseas from 1877 to 2023 written by Simon Wilde we will call you Oscar from now on partly because it's easier than calling you Simon and also because that is your official nickname and the number of books you've written now I think you deserve to be called Oscar Oscar Wilde. So, um, you know, I, I guess touring sounds and and is often the most enjoyable, glamorous idea a cricket tour, doesn't it, Simon? Um, this is that's to Simon Mann that question. <laughs> it's, it's, it's inevitably going to get confused with so many times. Yeah. I think, yeah, the, the the idea of touring is is quite glamorous, and I think um, Oscar makes this point. Uh, in the book, you know, you see it on TV. You see the, you know, you see the the overhead shot of Sydney, or you see the Table Mountain, and it looks fantastic. You know, you, we're all shivering at, at home in the middle of winter, and the players are out there, and it's and it's sunny, and, and it, it looks amazing. And you think, oh, well, you know, you'd give anything to be out there, while watching, or certainly playing. So, what what of your what's your research told you, uh, Oscar, about uh, touring? Uh, is it glamorous or not? Well, it's it's sort of both, really, isn't it? I think um, it's. I think Graham Swan mentioned that um, it's the playing uh, playing for England overseas is the is the best fun you can have before you have children. And I think there is this element of once you've got a young family, the 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 tug of being at home grows, and there and the and the fun diminishes because there's you you feel you're in the wrong place. So I think when you're a young guy, maybe single, no children, no ties at home. And all you're thinking about is playing cricket. It is the best thing you can do. And as you say, there's some glorious places to, to play cricket around the world. 
Um, things change as touring goes on. So your first tour, brilliant, you know, best thing ever. Um, second tour, maybe the, the novelty's still there. But then gradually, as you do your third, fourth and fifth, if you're good enough to keep being picked, um, it just becomes maybe a chore, becomes a job. You can you can see the downside. You've been to you know you've been to Sydney before. <laughs> you've been there. You lost once. You go back again. Um, so it, it I think it evolves. It's not a it's not a you can't give a straight answer, one one size fits all answer to that question. It depends how old you are and what where you are in your career. It didn't Tuffers actually say once? Phil Tufnell said once. Um, I've done the elephants and the the temples or something. Now I don't. I, you know I'm. I've had enough of it now, sort of thing. Been been there, done that sort of thing. Yeah. So yeah, the the novelty, yeah, the novelty wears off uh, when you've seen one elephant, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's a it was a difficult one, and I think um, you know the the, the men maybe cricketers now are far more sensitive than they used to be in terms of their responsibilities as family men. Perhaps you know, fifty years ago. You just accepted that you had to go away and be on tour and play cricket and you left your wife at home with the children. I mean, it's, it, the, that, that sort of attitude is sort of unthinkable now, isn't it? And players are allowed paternity leave if a, you know, if a child is born, they go home. They're not, the, they're not expected to stay on tour. But in the old days, there was no way that Gubby Allen was going to let you pop home to see, to see your baby. You had to wait until the four-month tour ended and then you could go home. So society's changed, isn't it? One of the interesting things about the book, uh, Oscar, is that you, you don't do it chronologically, you do it thematically. So we don't, you know, we don't start back in the 1870s. Um, we start actually with, with those two themes, actually. The first two chapters are The Fragile Machine, Why Touring is So Tough, and the second chapter is Staying Stain, Another Bloody Tour, which, actually, you know, probably if you, wrote, if you wrote this book 20 years ago, you probably wouldn't have necessarily started uh, with those two chapters. But okay, so w- w- why is touring so tough um is it because actually it, it's, it's quite hard to win away and you're actually probably losing more than you you would do at home is it because you are missing your family i mean just just explain I mean, you you've sort of touched on it already but what what, what did you find well I, I mean i spoke to several people you know recent recent players and administrators about this and andrew strauss had a long chat with him about this and he was very articulate on it and he said you know, most you've got to accept that when you're playing away from home, you're probably going to lose. You know, you don't win very often. And he said all the tours I went on with England were tough. You know, even the ones they won. Um, it's not easy. Just from a purely cricketing sense, winning in foreign conditions is obviously much harder than winning in England, where you know everything's different. The pitches are different, climate's different, all that sort of stuff. The crowds are hostile. There's there's nothing. There's nothing advantageous about it, really. It's 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 a, it's a test. It's a real it's a real test. And then he also made the point that you know you you're deprived of your support network, which is basically your family and friends, I suppose. So when you when the match is finished and maybe you've lost, you know you you haven't got maybe your wife and children to turn to to distract you from the job at hand. You haven't got your mates to go and play golf with or go to the pub and just you know unwind, forget about the cricket, which is what can happen in England. On tour, you're in this bubble and you stay in the bubble, and that is what you're all talking about. It's what you're all thinking. You know, there's no, there's no escape. So it becomes a bit of a, can become a bit of a pressure cooker, and if you lose, it's a sort of, you know, it's hard to reverse that process, particularly now on modern tours where it's so compact as well, isn't it? In the old days, you you'd play a game against New South Wales or Victoria. There was a sort of tempo to it. There was peaks and troughs in a tour. Now 
it's bang, bang, bang. It's all internationals, and it's the same players you're playing. If you start, if you lose, if you start losing, uh, if you start a series losing, how do you reverse it? It's it's hard. So. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's 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 what some of the. Factors. I mean, one of the problems, of course, is is and is how long you're away as well. And I know it's less time now than it used to be, but it's certainly longer than most sports people would be away for, isn't it? Because you've got five day tests, you've got three days between them. Even if you play a three day series, three sorry, three match series, you're talking best part of a month away, aren't you? Maybe a bit more, and. That that you know all those things you've mentioned there, it it does mean you're detached from your kind of general environment, and cricket becomes the all-consuming thing. I mean, of course, there is the flexibility now to go to leave a tour, which I'm sure there wasn't in the past. I mean, Pat Cummins has gone home from India to look after his ailing mother, hasn't he? So it's it shows how times have changed in a way. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, 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 can, I mean, the length of tours, I, I could, the, the, the tour of Australia that England did um, a year ago uh, or so, they played five tests. They were there for, they were in Australia for 78 days. So that's 10 or 11 weeks. Um, go back to the mid 70s, England, the Mike Dines tour went badly. England lost heavily. They were in Australia and New Zealand for 147 days. That's twice as long. Um, and it, they played five tests against Australia on both those both those two tours but it's all the stuff in between that went on as well um all these upcountry games the state games and there was people didn't and in fact on on that tour come to think of it brian luckhurst towards the end of the tour asked if he could go home he said i'm not you're not you're not picking me for the these final matches against new zealand can i not go home and they said no you can't you've got to stay (laughs) so he stayed even though it was he'd had enough you know but um no he had to stay you can't have I think, I mean, I make this point in the book, it's a bit like a, a, a touring party, it's a bit like a small military unit where you have to have very rigid discipline, everyone's got to stay in line, you know, you have this thing about, you know, you wear certain uni- um, sort of um, jackets and ties for official functions, you have to be back at a certain time, people can't come and go, You, you otherwise discipline breaks down and if you're going to maintain that with a small group of people over three or four months or whatever it is, or even less than that, two months, Everyone's got to follow orders, if you like, um, and I think that's that's obviously completely different from playing cricket in England, where you come and go and do what you like, really. So, is it is it always been tough? It's just that actually, uh, in the past, the players perhaps didn't talk about it as much. I mean, wh- wh- one thing I've noticed about touring as a, as a journalist is, you know, I, and staying in touch with people back home. You know, I, I can remember the, the first tour I went on was an A tour to Australia and I remember writing a letter to my girlfriend at the time now of course you could just FaceTime you know or or, or WhatsApp um, uh, video or whatever you know you can get in touch but I suppose that also brings home the the family situation um, starkly to you you know you can it's sort of if you're away from it completely you don't always conscious of what's going on you're not always conscious of what's going on at home I remember you know what there was one tour I went on when it was it, I was in India and it was it was like six dollars a minute to phone home you know you really couldn't you couldn't speak very long because it was it was so costly so there's a sort of there's a sort of double-edged sword to that isn't there now that you can actually stay in touch more but the problems of home if you like and the the distance between you is is perhaps amplified by the fact that it is much easier uh, to stay in touch so, so did, did, did players were players under a lot of strain, uh, 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 you know, I don't know, 70s, 60s, 50s, but they just didn't talk about it as much? 
I think they were, yeah. They were, and, and um, there'd be cases of players getting... I mean, I do a chapter on sort of births, marriages and deaths, and it's about, you know, parents dying when you're on tour, about children being born, maybe children being ill. Um, it was still difficult to get yourself off the tour to go home in those situations, um, partly because of travel um, and partly because the, the management didn't want you to. I mean, Ken Barrington asked to be allowed to join in a tour of Australia in the mid-60s, uh, uh, late, because his father-in-law was ill. And um, I can't remember, this might have been Billy Griffiths, the MCC secretary. Barrington went to see him and Billy Griffiths said, no, you can't, you've got to leave with the rest of the team on time. Sure enough, Barrington went with the team. As soon as they arrived in Perth, he got a telegram saying your father-in-law had died. You know, <laughs> this is sort of, this seems un uh, unimaginable now that people would be so insensitive, but it was just... The, the the way it was done really um but yeah i mean more recently wayne larkins famously used to phone home every night from a tour of the west indies i think and spent his entire tour fee on the phone bill you know the, because he wanted to speak to his wife every day he couldn't he couldn't bear not to but it, it meant that the tour made him no money whatsoever because he spent it all on the phone and that was the problem, of course. I mean, actually, I obviously didn't not on England tours, but I I spent a fair bit of time abroad playing cricket and like you, as Simon Man Man mentioned there, you know, you had to book in Sri Lanka when I was quite young. We had to book a call to phone home, and I was only nineteen or something, so I wanted to speak to my parents, and I, we had to book a call, and usually it took about nine hours to get the call through to the UK, and find and you it would always turn up at about four o'clock in the morning. The phone would ring in the house I was staying in. Your call is now available, sir, to, to call the UK. And so that was, you know, hopeless, really. Uh, then after leaving university, I played for the South African team, the Northern Transvaal in the Curry Cup. And I felt so alone uh, living on my own in a flat in Pretoria that I went AWOL after about two months. I just couldn't cope with the pressure of, performance as that as the sort of overseas pro to the northern transvaal team and i went i actually went abroad I, I i you know totally kind of absconded and went to malaysia to visit my girlfriend without really telling anybody uh, you know just kind of i couldn't cope with it with the pressure of it I, I guess you know we didn't have that term in those days but i guess i was sort of suffering from a, a sort of mental stress and just just on the uh, on the subject of phone calls and and so on i actually was in kenya in 94 had just met this girl I was really in love with. We faxed each other uh, because it was too expensive to phone. And eventually I proposed to her by fax and she accepted. <laughs> so we, we got engaged by fax, <laughs> which just sounds a bit crazy now, doesn't it? Well, that's old style WhatsApping, I suppose, <laughs> or SMS. Um, Oscar, why did touring start in the first place? I mean, we, we know we obviously know it did start, but what what was the the driving force behind uh, an England tour party going to? Well, it wasn't just Australia, was it? Um, it was also North America as well. And I wonder why that. I wonder why North America didn't kick off as a you know as a, a touring uh, destination. Is it, it's all about? Is this all about money? Uh, yeah, I think it was about money. The first tour, yeah, the first sort of England tour, it wasn't, a te it wasn't. you know, we don't regard them as test matches at all, but the first international tour by an England team uh, was to North America in 1859. Uh, George Parr was the captain. They probably went to North America partly because it was nearer than Australia <laughs> for a start. You know, you, you could sail there even in those days in sort of two or three weeks rather than like six or seven. So there was quite a difference in that sense. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was about money, 
and there was lots of money to be made um, through gate receipts. I mean, it was, you know, obviously no TV, no radio, no, nobody else was paying, but people did walk, come through the gate. And if you went to, say, Australia and you went to 30 different grounds, obviously you go to the main cities and that's probably where you get the biggest gates, but it, you, know, you could go up country and these the locals would come and what you know come and see these English cricketers who come around the world to, to to play cricket. You know it was a it was a real you know attract. You can see the attraction when there's no other way of seeing them. So it was a the gate receipts were very lucrative. And and one of the aspects of that is that of course that the players um, these tour, these tours were organised by the players themselves. Really, um, people like you know. Um, Alfred Shaw and um, Arthur Shrewsbury at Knotts, these sort of guys, they, the George Parr, they, 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 they were professional players and they wanted to earn, you know, hard money. Um, they'd organise the tours. They wouldn't want to take a large tour party because the more players, the, the bigger, the, you know, the larger the, 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 the split. So keep it, keep it to 11 or 12 players and everyone got more cash. So they'd, they'd do well out of those tours. And so... Many and they, they, uh, you can tell that they were successful because they would happen every two years practically. You know, they'd be every other year they'd go back to Australia. So it clearly worked. Um, but then the MCC got involved and they, they, they were the, um, in England. They were the presiding force of English cricket. They took over the organisation and they sort of fixed the wages. So they sort of capped the wages almost. So the players stopped earning quite as much and. Over the years, the MCC barely raised the the sort of tour fee. You know, it stayed at three hundred pounds or something for several months' work, and gradually this was eroded, and it became less attractive. And in a way, fast forwarding right through to the seventies, and no surprise that Kerry Packer came along because by that point the players were sick and tired of being paid peanuts to to play for England. One of the fascinating things, and there are lots of little fascinating stories and, and, and insights in the book. One of the, one of them was that you actually just alluded to there was the fact that touring parties used to be you know eleven, twelve, thirteen players. You think, well, how can you go to Australia with a touring party of say, you know, say thirteen? Say you had thirteen or twelve. Uh, you know that that's just not enough players to play thirty matches or whatever they did in those days. So you know people are going to get injured. So did people just hobble onto the field? Um, I mean, what, what was it like? What, what if you did your knee or your hamstring went? Well, I mean people did get injured. I mean they, they, sometimes. I mean I think that um, Ivo Bly, who was the guy who who, who sort of re- re- reclaimed the Ashes for England in the early eighteen eighties. He got injured on the boat out there and missed the first six matches because he'd slipped on the deck or something and injured his hand. Um, so people did get injured. Um, but I suppose maybe the... Put them at first slip. Just put them at first <laughs> Like you do in a club game. The person who can't move or is injured, you just put them at first slip, don't you? I think the bowlers didn't pick up the injuries they do now because they weren't... Because pitches were uncovered, they would run. their run-ups were so much more, uh, you know, less vigorous, if you like. That I think bowling injuries were perhaps less common than they are now, but they they'd occasionally rope in local people who might be there, you know, not not for maybe the test matches, but if there was if there was an injury crisis, they 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 just bring in some somebody who happened to be around who might be English and would help the team out. So that that sort of thing happened. You just you just pick someone up, um, but yeah, keep it keep it uh, keep it small. But yeah, even I think. Um, the think the second English Test tour of Australia, Lord Harris was the captain. He took twelve players, and he and he and he actually complained and said that uh, I wish I'd only brought eleven because um, 
the man who got left out would would grumble through the match as you know why he wasn't playing. So he he, he actually preferred he he liked the idea of only taking eleven players. <laughs> think there'd be a bit of rotation he might get a game somewhere wouldn't you with, with 12 they leaving the poor bloke out uh, the whole time and the other thing of course that used to happen uh, back in the day was that th- these touring teams they, they wouldn't just play against 11 would they they would they would play against 22 or whatever so how, how did, did you know how that worked I've always been I've always wondered how that worked would, would they have 22 fielders or was it just that they would have 22 batters so well, I, yeah, that was something that I was in, intrigued by, and I'm not sure. I think it varied, and maybe I think perhaps they might have 13 fielders or so. But you couldn't have 22; it would be it would be chaos, <laughs> wouldn't it? Clearly, <laughs> um, I mean, Ben Stokes would have 22 slips probably if he had 22 now. But um, no, you'd have. Um, I think they probably had a sort of 13 fielders, something like that. Um, but yeah, they. I mean, so you, if uh, to, to, to summarise it briefly, if England went to Australia and you were playing in Sydney, where the, obviously there's more people, the quality of cricket is just higher, you would play 11. But if you went up country to a little mining town somewhere, the quality of the cricketers is clearly not as good. You'd, you'd play tw- uh, 18, 22, things like that, 15. Um, but I think I've got a table in the book of the Eng- uh, England's matches against odds, and they gradually declined which is an indication that the quality was rising so that by the 30s it had pretty much died out and and they'd only ever play 11 but in the early days late victorian era yeah 22 was quite common 24 once i think i think the biggest team england ever played was 24 and yet funnily enough it was a barrel which of course was the birthplace of don bradman and um uh you know often said that he was a he was several players in one on his own, so... Uh, you needed 24 fielders with him batting, didn't you? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. One of the things that I always found enticing about the idea of of touring abroad was food. You know, the interesting, different, varied at times exotic food that you might get in, say, the West Indies or Sri Lanka or occasionally Australia. I mean, Australia were always good on their barbecues, weren't they? I remember actually every time I went to Australia, I'd come back and promised myself I'd buy a barbecue for the back garden and try and do a barbecue in April. And obviously it was a a hopeless failure, especially in weather like this today. But food, of course, is something that it's not everybody's cup of tea, if you like, to, to sort of mix metaphors. You don't necessarily want foreign food, do you, when you're on tour? Some players have found that quite a an obstacle to to being abroad. What were the kind of stories you found 
on that sort of line and also how has it changed? Yes, it's a good question. Um, I mean, back it's just one nice little story. Back it back in the fifties, um, say England were touring South Africa, uh, money was tight, um, and the local the local South African cricket board would um, to save money would put the players up with local families rather than in hotels. And it was nice in many ways. It was nicer for the players. They were better looked after than being in a sort of colourless hotel. Um, but Colin Cow just told a nice story about how um, this it was a very the tour that they did under Peter May in fifty six seven, very long tour. And Colin Cow just said that the longer the tour went on, the worse the England's performances became. Is that it was because the their hosts were so generous with the food that they were getting less and less fit as the tour went on. By the end, you know we could we couldn't move. We was and, and he um, he liked his food, didn't he, Colin Cow? Um, so they were, they were too well looked after there, and clearly there was no, in those days there was no regulation or, or nutritionist or anyone like that with them on the tour to say this is what you should eat. But of course nowadays England do take dietitians with them, and they do uh, famously, of course in, in Australia 2013-14 tour, the one that went very badly, um, there was an 82-page dossier, wasn't there, which was leaked in the end, came out, and uh, that this this outlined England's requirements in terms of what the players should eat and what the ho- they'd like the hotels to prepare for them, and they got rather ridiculed for being so specific about it. But that is what it's like now. Is the 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 program of eating is very tailored and and quite prescriptive, you know. But of course, in the old days, you in Ian Botham's day, I don't think he followed any dietary plan, did he? It was a sort of I, I mean, it's 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 an important point in a way because, of course, food is so intrinsically linked to cricket. Whereas other sports, you know, you obviously you're mostly in the hotel. With uh, cricket, you are at the ground for quite a lot of the food intake that that you you need. And I, I just recall actually, um, and and you know, with good reason that there's a bit of uh, kind of guidance on this because. I remember my first tour abroad. I played in Calcutta in a five-day match uh, with Mike Brealy as captain, and we got off the field at lunch to in the dressing room, basically an Indian banquet, you know, with all these sort of silver salvers and chefs and a, a tandoori roti oven in the dressing room, which just made it even hotter than it already was. And you know, it was like going into a sort of hotel buffet. Because there was all this array of fantastic dishes, um, all so locally prepared with all the spices and everything, all bubbling away, and you could get your plate out and spoon whatever you wanted onto your plate, and then eat it in the dressing room. And I, I just gorged myself. I thought, wow, this is just fantastic. This is this is an absolute feast. And then, of course, you've got to go out and bowl straight afterwards. And needless to say, in that particular game, after two days of absolutely stuffing my face with this delicious food. I was I was really ill, and for the luckily there was a rest day, which of course you don't get anymore in a, in this five day game. Um, I I was in bed the whole of the day because it was probably just eating too much rich food basically, and you know now they they it is much more regulated, which I suppose is is sensible. In in, in of course in the in um, the tours of in, India, the subcontinent England went on, they got very. They got very nervous about the food. They were they were, they were very worried that they would be ill. Um, Curried prawns and madras and Mike Gatting. 
they had the Mike Gatting incident back in the 50s they used to they were advised to drink with lots of whiskey because they believed that the whiskey would kill the bugs I don't know if that's still regarded as sound <laughs> advice or not but that's certainly what they did in the 50s um Jack Russell used to take you know he'd eat baked beans every day didn't he or he'd have steak and chips very well cooked steak and chips things like this you know and they they, they took corned beef on one tour I think maybe David Gow's tour of India they took hundreds of tins of Argentinian corned beef um it, you know crazy plans really but take a microwave oven with them things like this so they could cook pot noodles or something yeah, yeah I don't know but Again, I think that's now that that sort of attitude has changed totally, and I think they'd rather they they also the hotels have probably become more international in their cuisine as well. I noticed the the Neil Smith story slipped into the book, um, and that was a story from the World Cup of nineteen ninety six, Peshawar, England against uh, who were they playing in that match? Probably the UAE, I should think, and Neil Smith had a dodgy pizza I think on the night before the game and was actually sick on the outfield wasn't he he's actually batting at the time I think was sick and I think that from memory I think some of the England players knew it was going to happen they had their cameras out ready to record it which is which seems um a little bit harsh but of course the last tour of Pakistan England took their own chef didn't they but he he got ill quite early on in the tour <laughs> <laughs> God, <it's> ironic, but... <laughs> yeah it still happens I suppose um yeah Yes, I think um, yeah, I think players can get you can. Uh, I mean, there's some lovely stories from the early post-war tours. Obviously, you know the war, rationing, food shortages in Britain, and then you get selected for a tour of Australia, and there's lots of food there. So you know Brian Close wrote a very nice diary of his uh, tours, um, and he and he and he wrote home to you know a good friend of his and he he he'd explained that you know the, the the spreads of food that they would get every night and he said he couldn't you know just couldn't believe what was on offer you know it was it was luxury that they'd not seen for for many years so what what about um, what about rooming together which i mean obviously was a big feature of of tours of the past and again it's something that, that irks me really because you know you do that whether you're a county player at home or abroad and it was just awful rooming with people who's just whose nighttime habits varied from you know going to bed at eight o'clock in at night having had a, a a room service and you 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 get home at midnight to the room and tread in their remains because you want to don't want to wake them up and obviously they've left their plate on the floor to someone who uh, liked to have a, a bit of a nap early on and then go out at like midnight and you know perhaps bring someone back possibly, which would oblige you to hide in the bathroom or vacate the room until it was clear <laughs> clear to return. Uh, I mean, rooming is a nightmare, but at the same time, the idea behind it was, I suppose, to, to get some bonding going on. Yeah, and I think I think that, that worked. Um, you'd, you'd have a senior player perhaps with a, one of the new boys and, uh, you know, if, you, if you're on your first tour, it can be, it can be difficult, can't it, if you don't, if you don't, you don't know the country you're in you don't know many of the players you're with you, you don't want to be in a room by yourself really it's 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 a it's a it was a good idea and I, it, it possibly this practice changed in the late 90s um for obvious reasons that they needed more comfort and the rest of it and were entitled to a bit more personal space but we've had more players perhaps reporting mental issues on tour than we had before then so perhaps being stuck in a room on your own if things aren't going well 
is not the answer. Maybe you would be better off sharing a room because it, it, it doesn't happen. So there's there's an interesting correlation there possibly between how players cope on tour uh, in shared rooms um, or on their own. And there's a- There is a team room nowadays, isn't there, they normally have, where it's a sort of communal space, which isn't the, the hotel bar where you're in... You know, view of every every person who comes in and out, but you've got a private space which is team only, and you know, assistants and so on, kind of you know, support staff. So I guess that's not a bad compromise. Yeah, yeah. The team, I mean, the team room. Yeah, they'll watch they'll watch whatever sport is going on, won't they? Football matches or whatever. They can uh, they can do all that sort of stuff. So yeah, there there is there is that sense of communal space, and I think play, uh, I think the the current England teams are very good at looking after each other I think they've sort of people have woken up to these issues and are conscious that you know you don't leave a bloke by himself if maybe he's he's a youngster or if he's struggling or whatever so I think they're they are quite good at um, trying to look after each other as well what was that story about a, a player um, missing the team bus and having to cycle cycle behind it or something yeah there was well, there's a, on a tour of Australia there's a couple of uh, players who will remain nameless who who it was an upcountry game in Victoria, I think, and they'd um, had a night out and met a couple of local girls and gone back to their place, which was pretty much in the back of beyond, and um, then sort of woken up early the next morning and thought they'd better get back to the team hotel because I think the team were moving on to Melbourne. And um, they said, well, you know, what? have you got a local taxi company? And they're going, there are no taxis around here. And have you got a car? Have you got a car? No, we haven't got a car. So they realised that they were stuck, and they had to borrow. Basically, they took two bicycles and cycled frantically back into town, just in time to see that the team bus was pulling away from the hotel, and they had to <laughs> waving furiously trying to get. And I think the bus did stop in the end and, and let them on board, but they very nearly, you know, missed, missed the connection and the flight, and they'd have been in big trouble, obviously. Um, so yeah, you've got to. It's best to you need you need to be punctual. I think um, is, is is certainly something that happens on tour. You need to re- remember what time you're leaving and and um, yeah, don't be late. You you know what uh, what Shane Warne, the great Shane Warne, did actually in his year when he was captain of the Rajasthan Royals in the IPL is he had a very very strict uh, regime about right. You've got to get on the team bus. It's leaving at X. And Ravi Jadeja was a terrible person for turning up late. And he made him hitch a lift to the ground, even for the IPL final, which they got into in 2008. Jadeja was late for the bus, so they were left without him, and he had to get a lift with a supporter to the ground. And I think it taught him a, quite a good lesson, actually. Well, there was a Graham Swan story as well, wasn't there? From I mean, his first tour, South Africa, 1999-2000. Duncan Fletcher was the coach. Swan was late for a bus, and... Whether this was the reason why he was not picked for an England team for the next seven years. In fact, Duncan Fletcher had had, had left as coach by the time Swan then reappeared. It was um, it was the Peter Moore's era by the time that Swanee got back in the team. So, yeah, don't be late. Mm. I, I remember Swanee telling that story. I think he actually got to the ground. They were in staying in Johannesburg and they're playing at Centurion. 
and he actually got to the ground before the team bus and he was actually in a taxi that overtook the team bus on that motorway so he got there he got there to the ground before the team but that's not the way uh, you do it and actually it, the, the 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 players you have in a in a tour party and who the captain is is it does actually form a couple of chapters of the book as well doesn't it i, I sort of get the sense that back in the day there were a lot of sort of fudges about who should lead and who should go that you, you had sort of, you had to have the right chaps uh, to go on a tour and, and and certainly you had to have the right captain and he had to be the right sort he, he might not even be a very good player but he, but he, he goes because he can sort of hold everything together and he can speak at functions and things like that even though he can't score any runs or take any wickets yeah well i mean there's a story of um which i recount in the book of um uh somebody who's picked to lead a team to south africa in the 20s um derbyshire captain uh jackson and he, um, Guy Jackson, I think, and he, he was appointed, and he, he was so nervous about all the public speaking he had to do, he pulled out. He said, I, I, he, about ten days before the team was due to leave, he, he said, I can't, I can't go, um, and that led to Ronnie Staniforth, who was an army cricketer who hadn't actually played for Yorkshire at that point, but did subsequently play for Yorkshire, being, he was going to go as vice captain. I think he was a reserve wicketkeeper as well. He ended up being captain, and he and he captained England in those Test matches. That was his only that that, that was Staniforth's only involvement with Test cricket because he wasn't really you know good enough. He was a but he was he was an army chap and he could deliver a cracking speech. You know, so he was uh, he was he was he was the man for the job. And uh, MCC, particularly in the MCC days, um, they were very keen on picking the right sort to to lead a, uh, an England tour abroad. And it, the, there was an ambassadorial quality i mean i've discussed this in the book but you know the days when the royal family didn't used to go abroad very much the queen was the first sort of i think the first monarch in the 1950s to 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 visit one of the commonwealth countries and um so if if some english cricketers came they were sort of representing britain really you know um they were, they were representing the mother country so and they were always being asked to make speeches everywhere, every city they went to. There'd be another dinner, another function, another speech to be made. Um, so they had to, they did have to, you know, they did have to be sort of presentable, if you like. Um, so I could, you can, you can see why that was important. But it does seem rather ridiculous if if they could make a speech but they couldn't actually hold a bat, you know, which seems to be often the case. I think. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. How about um, for the press nowadays? Because... You know, you get the old stories of uh, the, the correspondents mingling with the players, travelling out with them on the boat and, you know, being their mates, really. Um, what's it like for, for the media now on tour? You've both been on a, an England tour recently. How much interaction do you have with the players? I suppose with the COVID scenario, not much. But over the recent times, you know, just give us a little sense of what it's like for a journalist to be on a tour. Well, in, in my time, things have changed 
a lot. I mean, I remember first going on A tours, and and on those tours, you you got to know the players. You you didn't get to know all of them, but you got to know some of the players quite well. So that if if you wanted to do an interview with a player, you would you would often just go up to them and ask them, say, you know, can you have you got five minutes? Can you speak? And that's how it used to happen. Now it's so much more formalized, so that you get to speak to a player every day, and it's it's in a much far more controlled environment. So what you are guaranteed to get are well for newspapers you're guaranteed to get quotes and for radio and television you're you're guaranteed to get talking heads but what you might find is the whole environment is, is so much more controlled you can't always get to speak to the player you might want to you often can because they you know the, the the media officer would put up a player each day who is quite newsworthy generally quite newsworthy and you, we, we can have some input we could say you know it would be great to speak to x today and that often happens but in you know in the past it, it was so much more uncontrolled so you might just you might actually do an exclusive interview and the, and the player might you know, come out with some quite controversial quotes. You might even um, sort of up, upset the apple cart within the team. I mean, that's that's happened before. I, I, I seem to remember Andy Caddick possibly doing an interview um, in the West Indies where, you know, he, he, he said a few things that perhaps the team management might have not wanted to hear. So it's, so it's much more controlled now. There's sort of, it feels like there's much more of it, but there isn't, there isn't perhaps that same player... Um, journalist interaction. I, th- I think that, that, that there is. It still goes on, but it's it's not quite as it used to be, where you get to know a player and you know you you, know, you they would they would give you things and you could use it and um, you know make, make a story out of it. Uh, I think that's fair. That's roughly fair, isn't it, Simon? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. <clears throat> it's, it's changed a lot. I mean, you and I probably started roughly the same sort of time, and our early tours would have been the same um, and. There was more informal access to players, and you could sort of maybe cultivate friendships in a way that's perhaps a bit harder to do now. Um, again, if the tour the tours are more compact now, so there's less there's less um, downtime for the players and for us than there used to be as well. So the whole rhythm of a tour is far more business like and 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 brisk. Um, so that doesn't sort of help really. Is it fun? Do you think? I mean, do you enjoy it still? Yeah, I enjoy it. Yeah, um, but it's yeah, the rhythm is 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 brisker, as I say. But um, yeah, I, I mean, going back to your original point about is 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 touring glamorous? There, there is still a great glamour to being in a Test match in Sydney or Cape Town or Barbados, and you know the players. If if things are going well for the team, again, they'll they'll be happy to chat um, to you. Um, so it's. It, it, yeah, it's it's still enjoyable, and I think the the players enjoy it if if things are going well. Yeah, I think it's an enjoyable experience. I mean, St- Stephen Jones, who's the Sunday Times Rugby Union correspondent, I think it was him. I'm pretty sure it was. Wrote a book once called Endless Winter, and th- and, that, and if you're a rugby correspondent, that's essentially what you have to put up with because the tours in 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 our summer go to uh, winter climes like New Zealand or or South Africa. But of course, for cricket journalists. It's sort of it's you could almost write a book called Endless Summer, and there is there is something nice about just getting away from the UK in the middle of the winter when it's perishing cold and it's snowing and it's dark and grey, and you are out in the warmth and it you know it feels like summer. It's a nice feeling. So yeah, there is that. I mean, there is there are all those other aspects of you know being away from the family and you miss 
so much being away from just your, the normal routine of life. And I think anybody who's been away for that length of time, you're coming back in, it's, it can be quite uh, difficult to assimilate again, you know, both for you and for the other members of your family. So yeah, it, it, there are there are pluses and minuses. I love one of just um, as we move towards the conclusion here. I just, I think as I said earlier, one of the the, the lovely things about the book, Simon, is that I, I love the the little stories and things like things I just didn't know. For example, um, there's a, a small story where you talk about Ted Dexter, and I didn't know this, being sacked as captain in 1962 by Walter Robbins. So he was the England captain in that in that summer, and it was a talk about who was going to lead the team to Australia in 62-3. But there was a test match at Lords where he didn't clap off the Pakistan players after one of the day's play and he was sacked as captain by Walter Robbins as a result so he didn't lead England in the next test match I mean it just seems like an extraordinary thing you know just so how much the game has changed he, he didn't clap the opposition off what, what what was the sort of background to that and the context of that well you, you've explained it but um, I think what happened is that Pakistan who England were beating quite comfortably at home you know it was not it wasn't particularly difficult to, to beat Pakistan then in English conditions but I think Pakistan had had a bit of a revival there'd been a bit of a partnership and um, so things hadn't gone well and Dexter was frust- as captain was frustrated at this this resist unexpected resistance and so he was a bit preoccupied so rather than clapping the opposition off as he went he was probably sort of thinking you know where did that all go wrong um, and this was a mistake that Robbins picked up on immediately. They said, "Well, this is, you know, this is very bad form." You, you, I mean, it seems absurd now, doesn't it? You would, you, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be noticed really, um, or, or it would be forgiven perhaps. Um, but then those sort of small things. I mean, Len Hutton had an incident in 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 the West Indies where he'd been batting for he scored a double hundred in Jamaica, batting for ten hours, and then a local politician tried to shake his hand as Hutton walked off back into the dressing room. Hutton didn't sort of know who he was, didn't, you know, he was in the, he was in the tunnel, mental tunnel. And this caused a major diplomatic incident because he'd, he'd slighted someone. Um, but yeah, Walter Robbins, basically, this, that, that, that was at a time in 62, they were toying with whether um, Dexter, Cowdery, maybe David Shepherd should lead them in Australia. Again, this is the, going back to the point about, uh, you might be perfectly good captain in England, but are you the right chap to lead England overseas? And 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 you might the 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 MCC might happily change their mind and say, well, you know, we, Ted, we don't want you for this tour of Australia because we think you know someone someone else would be better at doing the diplomatic stuff. So it, it, there's a beauty contest going on really, and so they just switched from Ted to Colin Cowdery to see how he went. Um, but in fact, Dexter in the end led the team, but. That sort of thing was not uncommon then, but that, that was sort of symptomatic of the MCC's handling of a lot of stuff. They didn't they didn't handle things very well for 60 years, really, but they'd get themselves in a terrible knot about stuff like that. Who, who, who was the right? Who was the right? The MCC doesn't come out of this book very well, I wouldn't say. Is, is that fair? <laughs> well, I, I, actually, I mean, this book is a sort of sequel to my <laughs> earlier history of the England team, which was sort of primarily about, obviously... Test matches, um, and I think somebody there said, I think Peter Oborn said, uh, I'd been I'd been far too nice to the MCC and, and Gabby Allen. Well, I, I think I hope he'll be satisfied that I've read <laughs> I've rectified that in this book, because I think their handling of tours is is not to be commended. And you've made it into the book, yours, and a little story about you. I think it's a game at Worcester, um, and this is this is actually about how touring parties 
are sometimes announced. You, you, you can hear you're in a touring party or not over the PA system at Worcester, yours, is it? Yeah, yeah, I, I remember it well, actually. Um, it was the last day of the season, uh, Middlesex, Worcestershire, and in fact, we had just won the county championship and uh, because uh, we were at Worcester and some of our players used Duncan Flurnley bats, um, we were invited by Duncan Flurnley, who at the time was chairman of Worcester and also had his bat factory nearby. We were invited for a champagne breakfast at his uh, bat factory and uh, before play on the final day when we'd already won the championship because we got the right number of points required. Um, we got onto the field for, to knock off the runs we we needed and the tannoy at lunchtime said you know well played to Middlesex uh, for winning the match and winning the championship and by the way uh, Norman Cowans has been selected for the England tour of wherever it was West Indies or Australia I think it was and um, Phil Edmonds has been left out and that was the first they knew of it and how did they react well, uh, my, my, yeah, there was another selection, maybe Gatting as well. Well, I just remember um, Cowan's being ecstatic and Edmonds being absolutely apoplectic and, uh, you know, inconsolable. Um, and, and then just being very dismissive and saying, well, you know, it's their fault because I'm, I'm brilliant kind of thing and it's their loss. So he was very good at dealing with disappointment like that. But it, it was an extraordinary sort of public um, re- reveal you know, no hiding places. Um, and literally, that was how you found out. Or you found out on the radio sometimes, didn't you, when teams were announced on Radio 2 on the, on the sports desk mm. that you were going to, about to be going on tour. I mean, or, you, or you'd been dropped. It was, it was extraordinarily harsh, really. So are things better organised now, or are, are they not? I, mean, I noticed there's a chapter, uh, Oscar, called, and it's chapter 20 of 22, and it's called The Wheels Come Off. Um, and it, it, it does actually refer to the 2021 Ashes and other debacles. So are things better? Are they more organised now? Or is there still room for a grotesque cock-up even now in this in modern era? Things are much better organised now, um, without doubt. Um, that, that tour of Australia was a bit of a, a, a one-off, I think. The COVID situation, um, the, the whole tour was absurd, really. Um, you know, England had to train behind sort of metal fences in some camp in Brisbane. I mean, it was a nonsense, really. Um, and, the, you know, every Australian state had different COVID rules. And, and I mean, it was, it was the tour, should, and in some ways, the tour shouldn't have happened. It was not, Australia was not a fit place to be running a, a cricket tour. But, um, and, you know, England probably had the wrong management in place. Um, they, they were, they were, because they, they got themselves tied up in knots about who, you know, the, the very idea of leaving Anderson Broad out at the Gabba seems crazy. Um, so there's obviously scope for mistakes. You know, the, the captain and the coach can still pick the wrong team, can't they? Um, n- nothing's going to sort of prevent that happening. Um, but broadly, things are m- much better organised. Yeah, I mean, there's so much money thrown at England teams now, isn't it? Isn't it in terms of their needs as big backroom staffs and all this sort of stuff you know they've got every, everything is catered for um so yeah i mean things are better organized without doubt it seems we in a way we've come full circle talking about that ashes tour because you, you the reason it did go ahead you said it probably shouldn't the reason it did go ahead i think you know was was tv wasn't it and the contracts the money that you know they were the tv companies were desperate for it to happen and it all goes back to how they it all started you know it, it 
it was all about money uh, back in the day, and I suppose um, it, it it still is. Well, anyway, uh, it's a it's a great piece of work. Um, it's called the tour. The story of the England cricket team overseas, 1877 to, to 2023. Very comprehensive. It's, it's a meaty tome. So once you've finished reading it, you can use it as a doorstop. And it's uh, full of brilliant anecdote and revelation. It's out uh, at the end of the month, uh, published by Simon & Schuster. Oscar, thank you very much for, for telling us all about it. And well done, actually. The, the, the bibliography alone is longer than the number of books I've read in my life. So a great effort. And uh, just as, as in keeping, I'm off on a cricket tour myself at the weekend. It's only three days. It's to Spain to watch a warm-up game between Derbyshire and Hampshire. Um, I'm not having to room with anyone, and I'll make sure that I turn up on time. So at least I've learned something, I suppose, from this conversation and from 40 years in the game. Thank you, Oscar. Thank you, Simon. Uh, just a reminder also, if you aren't aware, that uh, Kumar Sangakara is our guest in the World's Best Cricket Club, worldsbestcc.com tonight, and he'll be talking about cricket and his life on the podcast later in the week. Thanks for listening. Podcast Network.